Okay, while, while they work on that, I'm sure that um, with, with Gail's very lucid presentation, there may, there, there may be some follow-up questions. Um, Gail, what you've done is, is you've elucidated very well on something that Jose Antonio Campo uh, referred to last night when he talked about how the, the stimulus programs are offering developing countries more debt. And you've, you've very clearly shown that the, the official response, uh, the, the famous $1.1 trillion, will mean not only more debt, but debt that will be unsustainable. So um, I would invite people, if they have questions, particularly for Gail, if you could please go to the microphones and identify yourselves. They're all asleep, you see. <laughs> Everybody's fascinated watching the screen. Yeah. <clears throat> please. Um, I actually was at CETA this summer and did a research project and on Canada's outstanding ODA loans. I don't know how, how many people are aware, but we have about $800 million that uh, we're asking all these countries to pay back, I think. But my question is, um, Canada has initiated, uh, along with other countries, debt conversion programs. And if I can get your comment on how you think those function. I have my own opinions, but I'd like to hear yours. Thanks. Okay, maybe we'll take another question and then... Uh... My name is Susan Spronk. I'm from the School of International Development and Global Studies at the University of Ottawa. I'd like to take the opportunity to invite Gail to talk a little bit about the importance of the initiative in Ecuador in terms of doing the inventory of debt uh, and whether it serves as a model for other countries. Certainly we have a country that's run by a very educated finance minister, which certainly has helped the political process alone along. So if you could please tell us a little bit more about your involvement uh, in that initiative. Thank you very much to very good questions. Is that working? Yeah. Um, firstly, on debt conversion programs, um, or debt swaps. I have very mixed feelings about debt swaps. For those of you who don't know what a debt conversion or a debt swap is, um, it essentially means that a creditor, for example, Germany, will agree to forego a certain amount of debt repayments provided the government invests it in, for example, uh, debt for nature swap, an environmental uh, protection preservation program or debt for education swap to invest it in um, uh, certain education uh, materials or, or, or projects. Um, there have been some positive examples of debt swaps where um, they have released funds for development in uh, community projects um, and other examples of debt swap programs which have been just awful because the debt, the money that was foregone in debt service payments was tied to the purchase of ex educational materials or other goods from the creditor nation. Um, so, I mean, our, our position as Eurodad is that debt swaps are essentially um, 
an expensive way to cancel debt. There are high transaction costs involved in these processes from negotiation at high level uh, for the swap to agreeing what the money's going to be spent on to you know, getting the projects together, agreeing who and what is going to be the beneficiary, if it's going to be tied or not. So why not just cancel the debt? If you think the government can't pay it, then why not just cancel the debt? So I mean, we have sort of mixed feelings um, about sort of conversion programs. Um, and the second question related to the Ecuadorian debt audit process. Um, this really was um, uh, uh, a truly original uh, initiative. There have been debt audit processes in the past whereby um, civil society organizations have tried to dissect the external debt portfolio. Um, uh, I can hear you fine. Oh, great. Hi, Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to carry on or yeah. shall I finish? Okay. Um, um, you know, there have been civil society audit initiatives that have attempted to um, dissect the external debt portfolio and have a look how the money was spent, um, who benefited, what went missing and so on. But this was truly original in the sense that it was the government that instituted the Debt Audit Commission and it was the government that opened its archives, that opened its books to scrutiny. Um, and I was one of three international members of the, the Debt Audit Commission, and um, I was particularly responsible for work on bilateral debt. We divided ourselves into four groups, multilateral debt, commercial debt, bilateral debt, and domestic debt. So I looked at um, sovereign to sovereign loans, and also Paris Club debt consolidation agreements. And on the sovereign loan to sovereign loan, what struck me um, most importantly is um, basically, uh, and it may sound obvious and very simple, but when you actually have the debt loan contract in front of you, um, which I'd never seen one before, um, you know, it really strikes you very starkly about how these just don't respond to the development needs of the beneficiary country at all. They're driven purely by the commercial interests of the lender nation in sort of 99 out of 100 times. I mean, you know, they're, they're sort of 100%, or pretty much 99% were, were tied to the purchase of goods and services from the originator country at often inflated prices, and um, they didn't necessarily reflect what was needed at local level. And, um, you know, you wonder why these loans don't work. And um, on the Paris Club consolidation agreements, I think another thing that struck me was, um, you know, just how much you know, a few loans will be bundled and consolidated together. And you go to the Paris Club and they'll bundle these few loans together that you can't pay, and then you can't pay them again. So they're again bundled together again and interest is added. And then they're bundled together again when you go to the Paris Club a third time and reconsolidated and recapitalized and reconsolidated and recapitalized uh, of the recapitalization of the interest. And you can see how these just snowballs out of control very, very quickly indeed. And um, that was what was, was most worrying um, about that, you know, that a, a few unpayable loans at the beginning, you know, eight Paris Club agreements later, was just this huge unpayable debt that was just 
totally interest um, and nothing more. So I think that was able to, we were able to shed light on, on a lot of these practices. And I remember talking to one European government about sort of the tied nature of um, uh, of all of their lending, to, of all of their um, uh, yeah, lending to middle-income countries, and they said, "Well, we've untied loans to lower-income countries, but middle-income countries are expected to be able to negotiate for themselves." But I think we need to, you know, put more effort on actually untying all, you know, loans and, and aid because, you know, who who benefits? We benefit, and then most of the money gets repatriated back to back to us. So let's take questions for Oscar while he's still on the line. Yeah, please identify yourself. Uh, Fergus Watt, just uh, a little more information on, on the proposal. Just um, where, what's the state of play on this? How much support does it have? If you can read me the questions out loud, I can answer them immediately. You got it, Fraser? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, perfectly. Meaning, where are we? <laughs> well, now, now we're sitting in Ottawa. Um, we, have, <laughs> we have been doing this now for nine years, and we've been publishing on this since 2003 or 2002. I can't remember. So we've been going at it. Uh, the Latin American governments are not interested in promoting it. But then again, they won't be, because the Latin American governments are not uh, in a debt squeeze situation. Rather, they're in a, in a rather healthy economic situation, except for Mexico, of course. Um, so this means that at least the governments that we've, we thought could give us support have switched their interest more towards the Bank of the South and are pushing now a new type of development bank for the region and have dropped this idea. But I think uh, we should keep pushing it. <laughs> well, I hope meeting in Ottawa with all of you is, an, is a way of pushing it. And there you have both texts in English that I sent you. Um, uh, sort of uh, I don't Well, the last time we knew we had the German government look at it with sympathy. We had the Finnish government look at it with sympathy, and the Norwegian government was looking at it with sympathy. Um, the US government was not looking at it. I think the British government was looking more at the Kunibert Raffer's initiative. And uh, I think that's more or less it. That's more or less it, but I think we can keep on pushing this at the UN level. Um, a sort of a variation on the same question. Sometimes when one is thinking of multilateral innovations, um, one thinks in terms of, of partial uh, steps or, or regional steps. Or is, is this sort of a, an arbitration board something mm -hmm. that could be uh, championed by a small group of countries uh, um, or, or a, a, a group in a region um, or, or that sort of thing? Well, I mean, you've mentioned UN or, uh, as, a, as a sort of an institutional home, but I'm wondering if, if uh, 
if that's too ambitious, if there are sort of smaller ad hoc uh, initial steps? Um, well, we could try pushing it at the ASEAN, and we could also try pushing it at UNASUR to see if we can get something rolling. But, uh, but I think this should, this should be a UN initiative. Um, given the, multi the multilateral nature and given the, the change in who the debtors are and who the creditors are. So I think that given the changes, it should be a UN initiative. Information to add? And I just wanted to add a brief comment on the, the sort of state of play on proposals on, on sovereign debt arbitration. I was in Istanbul a couple of weeks ago at the annual meetings of the World Bank and IMF. And while the issue of further debt relief for countries in difficulties is firmly off the political agenda, I definitely did detect a greater openness from the World Bank, at least, and from some developed country governments to look at the issue of a sovereign debt arbitration mechanism or sovereign debt workout mechanism. And um, the World Bank will issue a research paper on this subject um, for March 2010. And it is our intention as NGOs, hopefully in cooperation with OSCAR, to try to feed into that process and make sure that that uh, contribution is as sort of progressive as we would like it to be. As Oscar mentioned, um, a couple of European governments had already um, indicated some openness towards the issue, notably Germany, um, Norway, but now the Netherlands has come up with uh, its own proposal for such a mechanism. It's not entirely altruistic because they would like this court to be uh, in The Hague, of course, but you know, that's, uh, that's fine. Um, so we're working with them to try and uh, improve that proposal and, and push that forward politically. Um, UNCTAD, um, Oscar has also mentioned them a couple of times. They've initiated a three-year project on the issue of responsible lending, responsible borrowing, and odious debt. And we would hope that we could feed in these proposals into that process. Finally, um, I would say that what we really need very strongly is um, developing country governments to actually come forward very vocally and energetically and say, yes, this is what we want. And if we can get a sort of caucus of uh, developing country and developed country governments really enthusiastically pushing this at the international level, then um, we might get somewhere. So that's what we're going to try and work towards achieving. Thank you, Another question? imagine in my mind having sat through uh, perhaps six or seven Paris uh, club negotiations I'm trying to imagine them giving it up <laughs> because it certainly was one of the most brutal experiences I think that I ever went through in my career uh, you know as a uh, development officer it, it's a pretty tough process and they're pretty dug in in Paris as you well know the um, so the whole question of gradualism is one that I can't ignore in, in looking at that proposal and wondering whether or not
some dimension of Paris Club reform has been part of the discussion. And by the way, I'm not trying to suggest that we not go all the way on this one. I think it's really critical that we do, except I am trying to be maybe just a bit pragmatic in the light of certainly the experiences I've had at Paris. And uh, wondering whether or not people have done that or, or have opened that kind of discussion with the Paris Club people. The other thing is about UNCTAD and precisely the last issue that you mentioned, uh, Gail, and that is the search for support amongst the developing uh, country governments. And I'm wondering whether or not the appropriate linkages with, with ECOSOC um, have come to play around this whole issue of an UNCTAD secretariat for the, this uh, proposed scheme. Because certainly that's where the constituencies now are with respect to developing world, in my view. On the issue of gradualism and Paris Club reform rather than abolition, I mean, of course, the Paris Club will um, want to preserve um, preserve itself as far as possible and very successfully portrays itself as a as a body which has progressively extended more generous. Uh, terms to developing countries in debt difficulties over the years, and it's true that they've um, they've made more flexible uh, their terms, and they've cancelled more and more debt, uh, bilateral debt, um, over the course of the the past five decades. Um, uh, um, you know, on a on a sort of ongoing basis. But the Paris Club recently celebrated its 50th anniversary. I went to the birthday party at the, the Treasury in, um, at the Bercy in Paris. And, you know, they celebrated the fact that, you know, 50 years of the Paris Club and look at, you know, I think 86 uh, countries had reached agreements with the club for I don't know how many billion dollars in, in debt cancellation. And, you know, I think ultimately, does that not show that it's not working as a forum? Um, you know, every time a country goes to the Paris Club, it's for a sort of permanent exit. And yet Senegal's been there 14 times. Uh, Ecuador's been there eight times. And if you look at the eight loan consolidation agreements from the Paris Club um, and Ecuador, you know, you just see very clearly how uh, interest has just been capitalized and then recapitalized again, as I said earlier, and has just spiraled out of control. And I think from the perspective of civil so society organizations, it's the body is illegitimate and doesn't work. So no, we haven't, in short, answer to your question actually considered the, the sort of idea of Paris Club reform and this, the proposal that Oscar, or the, the variations of the proposal that Oscar um, presented very, very clearly have been our preferred, uh, preferred path. Come under the UN umbrella or not, uh, I have the impression that the Scandinavians particularly are, are uh, very much into the court of arbitration, and Norway in particular. And, but Finland would also follow suit with Norway. Uh, but of course, if we can get uh, the UNASUR countries and if we can get ASEAN countries to join in this discussion, then we could go forward.
network, but that would of course mean organizing a conference to discuss this at the at the top level of UNASUR and uh, ASEAN with the top uh, levels of Norway and Finland, that, and the UN people, of course, because it would have to be a UN umbrella. I don't know what, what umbrella they have been thinking of using, but it would need to be, I think, a UN umbrella. Okay. We're, we're approaching our um, 3.30 coffee break time. I don't, know, don't see anybody at the mic, so I know, Gail, if you have any uh, wrap-up comments you wish to share. No? Is the noise That's behind good. me bothering you? <laughs> Oscar? No. No, I'm perfectly happy. <laughs> well, okay. we're very grateful, Oscar, for the special effort you made to be with us. And uh, we hope the next time you, yeah. we, we can see you well, in person. And thank you. And let's hope the next time this doesn't happen. <laughs> okay. Right. Thank you. So why don't we, uh, we go for our coffee break and come back promptly at uh, 3.45 for the next panel. So thank you, Gary.